Hey, welcome to the Mentored Podcast hosted by Deliver Hope, equipping parents and mentors to empower at-risk young people to dream beyond their circumstances and excel despite their disadvantages. Welcome to the Mentored Podcast. Today we have Courtney McPherson and Carly Petraz. Courtney is a LMSW, a trauma therapist, and Carly is a program coordinator and forensic interviewer at Children's Advocacy Alliance. Today I got to sit down with both of them and discuss their expertise and their experience working with kids um, who have experienced trauma and how our mentors and parents can be better empowered to handle those situations. So can you guys talk a little bit about each of your prospective roles at Children's Advocacy Alliance here in Conway? How did you get to that career? Um, and what, what kind of brought you into this, in this realm? Yeah, <clears throat> so the Children's Advocacy Alliance, it's an umbrella organization between CASA, which is Court Appointed Special Advocates, and then the Children's Advocacy Center, which is where Courtney and I work. Um, so we have a lot of different roles at the center. Me in particular, for the longest time, I've been just a forensic interviewer. So essentially my job is, you know, when somebody calls the child abuse hotline and gets assigned to an investigator, that investigator will call us for resources. Um, and one of those resources is a forensic interview where I get to listen about the alleged maltreatment that the child's been through, whether it be sexual, physical, neglect, or otherwise. Um, I've since moved into a position of program coordinator as well, so now I supervise CAC staff, um, but my heart still really stays with the forensic interview piece, obviously, because, you know, serving direct clients is awesome. I got started, I actually had a friend who, who worked for the organization and I was just not happy with what I was doing and she sent me a text and she was like hey we have this opening where you get to listen to abuse kids do you think you could do that and I was like <laughs> uh do you think I could do that because I had no idea I had kind of volunteered um, for something that we do called festival of chairs so I know a little bit about the organization but I genuinely asked her do you think I can do this and she was like I do because I worked with kids before this um, and I had, you know, gone to school for sociology, and so I loved that side of things, of learning about, you know, socioeconomic status and the inequities of the world and just how all the dynamics come together. So that's kind of how I got how I got started. <clears throat> so I have a bit of a sore throat, <laughs> but I'm the trauma therapist at the CAC, and I um, have a weird beginning, I guess. So I made my parents super proud and got a bachelor's degree in art. Um, <laughs> and then when I was around 25, um, I developed a cardiac condition called um, sudden, cardiac, um, <clears throat> sudden cardiac arrest syndrome. And so um, after like facing my mortality for a little bit, I was like, I did not, I didn't come through this mm. to do art that I'm not even good at. Oh, <laughs> like it was not good. Um, so I looked into some options and I wanted to give back to the world, I guess. <clears throat> and when I was in the hospital, there was a social worker at the time who was a huge benefit to me. She helped me. I was so scared and she was like the peace in my storm. Mm. Um, so I looked into social work and I didn't really have therapy in mind at first, but I decided to get, um, 
I got a bachelor's degree in sociology and then a master's degree in social work. And while I was getting my master's, that's when I did a lot of internships in different programs. And I really liked working in trauma and working with therapy and specifically kids. So I've just been trying to learn as much as I can since then. Um, my specialty, like I said, is trauma, but my subspecialty is working with victims of, um, identified victims of sex trafficking and do domestic minor sex trafficking. And I came here, um, actually saw a Facebook ad, <laughs> and they were like, we're hiring a, tra a trauma therapist. And I was like, oh, cool, let's see what that's about, because I was commuting to Little Rock. So I applied and I've loved it ever since. We're really excited about y'all's expertise and um, your experience and uh, working with really light and fluffy, airy subject matters, right? <laughs> so um, I've had a lot of mentors and parents in the past um, ask how to best support and um, love kids when they themselves are dealing really heavy um, maybe past things. So how do you guys um, kind of, you know, self-care in during all, your day-to-day -day work and all of that? Yeah. We kind of joked about it <clears throat> because, you know, we always ask other people, like, what's your self-care technique, you know? And we talk about how it's so important, but it's so hard to have really good self-care. Mm -hmm. um, I would say for me, and, and Courtney's probably going to have better answers than I do, but for me, I don't even know if it's a technique, but I really rely on my team. Um, so at the end of the day, like joking and talking about how cases were and just really debriefing how the day was and just making it more lighthearted, which I don't know if that sounds morbid, but um, I really rely on that. I really rely on um, like my fiance. He is my rock. And so when I go home, you know, I used to just unload everything on him, and I was like, I can't do that. Uh, but he's a major support to me. And I don't know if I have really good self-care techniques, um, but I try to just check in mentally. Like, where am I at? How am I doing? What do I need right now? Do I need a day off? Do I need to just take a walk around the block? What do I need? So mm -hmm. I think that that's kind of how I gauge um, what I need. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. So I need to practice what I preach, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I would say like the foundation of self-care for me, what I've come across, I, I didn't write a book on this or anything, but um, is community and uh, boundaries. So like when you have a strong community, like Carly was talking about, um, you know, a lot of my job is listening to intense trauma for eight, 10 hours a day from all these different kids and it can get kind of overwhelming and I could start to forget that this world is actually a good place. Mm -hmm. And it just so happens that I'm working with a lot of heavy bad things. Um, so that's where your coworkers, your community comes into place. So, I mean, it might just be, I know that I've made a joke um, for one of our advocates. I'll go up to her, I'm like, I need you to get mad about this. And then I just tell her something. Or I need you to, I need to tell you this, so because I know you're going to get as mad as I'm mad right now. And I just needed someone to match me. <laughs> so they kind of are used to that, like, oh, just let her go off, whatever. <laughs> she just needs someone to match her. And then with boundaries, you have to set strong boundaries. And this is the one I'm really bad at. Um, and that's compartmentalizing things so it's five o'clock it's time to go your day is done you need to leave 
work at work and try not to think about the clients while you're cooking dinner and not worry about what's happening with this kid while you're trying to spend time with your own family. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I'm not good at that, but that's my goal for the year is to strengthen my own boundaries. Um, So you've talked a lot about, you know, the heaviness of the struggles that the kids that you specifically serve are. Can you talk a little bit about what types of kids might come to children advocacy? Yeah. So abused kids. (laughs) Um, No. So typically we serve a lot of sexually abused kids. That's the majority of who we serve. Um, Primarily females. Um, And age range kind of depends. Some, it seems like some months we're serving, you know, like little ones, like five to seven year olds. And some months it's like 15, 16 Um, so that really depends but I don't know if there's a certain type because it's like abuse happens across the board right Mm -hmm. so it's like a lot of the families we feel like are lower socioeconomic status but that doesn't mean that it's not happening in like higher socioeconomic status houses as well Um, so I don't know if there's a certain type but I would say that predominantly we're serving sexually abused children we also serve physically abused neglected children predominantly sexually abused do you notice a difference in the types of trauma that come in? So, you know, I know you serve a much wider range of ages than we at Deliver Hope serve mainly teenagers, but is there a, uh, do you notice a trend in um, the types of abuse that teenagers come in for? I would say there's not a big trend. Um, like she was saying, I would think most of our cases are sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, the fewest are kids who have been witness to violence in the home, domestic violence, murder, that kind of thing. Um, then that's probably the least amount. But I would think that, you know, it's kind of the same from all ages because it happens from families and children of all ages and all socioeconomic statuses doesn't matter where they live or what their race or what Mm -hmm. their sexuality um so we don't have a whole lot of trends other than the majority are sexual abuse Mm -hmm. which i think a lot of people need to hear and be reminded of just because you know sometimes people think um you know, that doesn't happen here, or that doesn't happen with this type of person, or this age of person, or this gender. Um, And so I think that's a good reminder that it's, you know, it's across the board. Yeah, abuse has no bounds. Right. Um, How does your organization serve the child's family as a whole? So, you know, specifically during and after a case, we're trying to get better about aftercare. Um, So what does that look like for your organization? Because I I imagine not everyone is, you know, wants you to stay a part of their lives, right? Um, So how do you maintain that contact? Yeah, so we have um, what's called a family advocate. So when you come to the center, you're not assigned a family advocate, but you get a family advocate. Um, And their job is literally to be the rock for the family. So say the family comes in and they need help with groceries, they can help with that. Say they need help getting an order of protection, they can help with that. Um, Say they just need to vent. That's what the family advocate is there for. They're literally there for anything the family needs. They have a follow-up schedule. Um, but a lot of these families need a lot more than just a one week follow up, a three month follow up, you know, that kind of thing. And like you said, there are some families it's like, Hey, we don't want you. We don't need you. And unfortunately that does happen. Um, but we have really great advocates that stick with the families and talk to them almost on a daily basis. Even Courtney, she'll, you know, check in with families all the time. 
But I think it's just about, like in terms of providing care afterwards, it's always just checking in and saying, okay, how are you doing? What do you need? What can we do? I think that's the biggest thing is what can we do for you? Because we always want to be a support for them. Um, do you have any specific like aftercare things that you can think of? How might a mentor like specifically figure or approach that topic? Because sometimes it's uncomfortable or awkward and you don't want to embarrass somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, but if a mentor specifically notices things like that, how could they connect with you guys? That kind of thing. So I kind of want to put a plug in because it relates to your question, but there's actually this really great website that we just started using. It's called um, findhelp.org. So literally, it's like you go to findhelp.org, you put in your zip code, and it's like, say that you have a family or a child that is having like a housing crisis. You just go to the housing tab or say that they need help with like um, getting food. You go to the food tab. So that's been a really great resource for us. Um, And so, you know, a lot of times we're not directly working with people just like right off the street. We're working kind of on the backside once there's an investigation, but we love sharing resources. So I think if any time that a mentor or somebody was like, I just don't know what to do, like still give us a call. We might not be able to directly, you know, have the kid come in and do that kind of thing, but we'll share any and all resources that we have. We love having like a resource binder. Um, We've had, we have advocates that their minds are just full of resources. So we're always happy to share anything. And we're constantly learning, like even you guys, like we didn't know everything that you guys did. And it's like, okay, let's add that to the binder. Um, So I say, just give us a call. That's kind of the biggest thing. Even if you're scared, just give (laughs) us a call. (laughs) Um, so do you, um, sometimes the amount of services that you'd like to provide for a family can seem overwhelming. So you, um, you know, maybe notice a hundred or know of a hundred things that, uh, Conway or whatever could offer this family. How do you prioritize those so that it's not, you know, like, look how much help your family needs. It's more like, you know, what can we um, I'm trying to think of the right word, but yeah. So I think ultimately we want to start with like those basic needs, right? So do you have shelter? Do you have food? Um, do you have water? Do you have a place to go? So like, let's start there, you know, and then it's kind of like, okay, tell us about your supports. Do you have family? Do you have friends? Do you have people that can support you? (coughs) Excuse me. Um, so we kind of just go like layer by layer and again the advocates they do follow-ups and so at each follow-up they'll check like how are you doing is there anything I anything you need so it's not just all at one time like oh my god you need a hundred things right so it's like let's start with the basics and then progress and progress and progress so I think it's important too that um, a mentor advocate I know our advocates do this but you have to be a thousand percent judgment free Mm -hmm. so it's not like oh my gosh your life is a mess let's what let's fix it and to for each mentor and advocate to remember like just because it's not acceptable way that you would live Mm -hmm. doesn't mean it's not an appropriate way for them or an okay way for them and so just to appropriate to approach it at a completely judgment free and like ask them what their needs are instead of what you think they need Mm -hmm. that's good we're kind of getting into the area. I, I, through my professional development and all these things, I, I guess I didn't realize how overreaching and how um, trauma really affects every area of your life. So a kid might be surviving, you know, or um, maintaining a certain 
um, way of life, but really they could be at a, a substantially better level of well-being if they um, could deal with trauma. It really affects all of their areas of life. And um, when a kid comes into your facility, um, you're obviously interviewing and doing all these things to um, even see if there is, because I imagine it's it's most of it is alleged, correct? It's mm-hmm. not um, yeah. for sure. And so what are the signs and behaviors and things that might be an indication of trauma? I imagine it might be a little bit different based on an age too. Um, and I know you said predominantly women, but that might... Um, or female, but that might also be a reporting. Um, I imagine it'd be harder for males to come forward and all of that stuff. So what do you look for? That's a loaded question, huh? <laughs> no, I love it. I'm the trauma therapist take that one. That's why she loves it. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, that is a good question. And I wish that I could say, if you see a kid who has behavior A, B, and C, mm-hmm. then they're being abused, call the hotline right now. Mm-hmm. Because then everyone's life would be a lot easier. We could save more kids. But the truth is, it's a gray area. Yeah. So I can tell you some common indicators of abuse or trauma. And... Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that if there's a child who are who's exhibiting those behaviors that they've been um, through abuse or any kind of trauma. And the best way to make that determination is for the caregiver or the adult in their life um, to just ask and be a listening person and just offer like, hey, I'm, I've noticed some things going on. Is there anything you want to talk about? I'm a judgment-free person. Um, not to just prepare yourself to be able to ask the important questions. Um, So when we look at specific behaviors, I know that um, we hear a lot, we have a lot of meetings and things and people in other disciplines might say like, well, she started wetting the bed, so clearly stepdad is sexually abusing this child. And that's not necessarily true because while bedwetting or developmental regression, that can be a sign of trauma in some kids, but not in all kids. It could be a sign um, that she's, the child is scared to get out of bed and go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. Um, It could be anything. We also look in older kids. um, Oh, I'm sorry, let me back up. So with younger kids too, um, they model, their, their behaviors are modeled after what they see. So one big indicator for younger kids is if they're acting out in play or um, just in general acting out sexual behaviors that they shouldn't know about and that could be like using their dolls that could be um, words that they are using that are just not appropriate for their age level that's a huge red flag Um, just because where are they hearing that what are they seeing who's done this um, in front of them who's done this to them so that's a big thing to look for Um, and that's how it comes out with kids is in play a lot of times because they don't know that it's not normal and it's not okay for someone to be doing these things to them. Mm-hmm. Um, with older kids, especially males, like you said, they do not want to report because of that shame and that stigma. Um, or even like with all kids, the threat. Um, I know where your parents live. If you do this, everyone's going to think you're a whore, that kind of thing. Um, 
but look for teenagers whose personalities change which that's hard to say because what teenagers personality doesn't change that's why it's so Every tricky yeah. <laughs> that's why it's so tricky is because you have to keep a, an eye out like who are they hanging out with are they now um more withdrawn than they used to be do they not like doing the things they used to like to do are they having trouble going to sleep at night um and like these things pertain to kids of all ages but i was just particularly talking about teenagers are they experimenting with drugs alcohol um more risk-taking behaviors and again all common with any adolescent but um, someone in their life who can pick up on these things mm -hmm. and can have a conversation with them as a non-judgmental adult just being like I just want to check in with you bud mm -hmm. you seem to be making some different choices or is everything okay um, <clears throat> and you're never doing wrong by just asking yeah so that was actually, you know, ahead of the game, right? So what types of conversation do you think would be helpful and maybe even what types of um, questions might be unhelpful as far as um, if you notice something or maybe you've brought it up in the past, like you said, you, you might say, hey, I, I noticed this one thing and then it's completely shut down. Maybe you want to try again, maybe a little bit more forceful is that helpful what what kind of things would be good in that situation um yeah it can be helpful to keep pursuing a line of questioning especially if <clears throat> excuse me especially if um a teenager or an older child kind of shuts it down and but you didn't get enough information for you to be able to make that report yet mm -hmm. um it's it's fine to keep pursuing it i think and i know i've said this like a thousand times you have to be non-judgmental Mm -hmm. um because a lot i would say of all the kids i've worked with it would be really close to 100 percent of them feel um personal responsibility and shame for the abuse that they have suffered because their abuser is commonly someone that they know and trust and has made them to believe that it's their fault and if they tell something bad will happen and that's their fault so mm -hmm. as long as maybe let them know like you're here to listen and with younger kids um i think that they get tricked sometimes because adults do not need anything from a child no adult will ever need anything from a child so you a child does not need to keep secrets for an adult for any reason a child doesn't need to be friends with an adult i mean that's have like a mentorship but you know um it's to let them know like this it's not okay has anyone ever told you like to keep secrets because adults don't need kids to keep secrets for them mm -hmm. and things like that yeah. and just i say keep asking until um as long as you're non-judgmental and yeah. supportive yeah the we had a she still works for the organization she was an advocate and she was phenomenal but she always told like parents or caregivers or people in the child's life like you don't have to believe them but you have to support them right so just because like they come to you and they say something and you think like ah, i just don't know if i believe that right well you don't have to believe them but you have to be there for them mm -hmm. so i think that that's really important to remember too is there so we have a lot of uh, mentors who kind of want to talk about um, boundaries sexually because teenagers, you know, have boyfriends or they have, you know, the love of their life or whoever, and they get really serious, but that's not something that's 
um, addressed in our schools really and parents especially a lot of times it it hits a little bit different when maybe a mentor brings it up um, so do you guys have conversations with kids while they're in there about you know um, maybe healthy practices or encouraging um, you know being safe and that kind of thing how do you guys go about topics like that I think that would probably um, be addressed more in therapy than in, in any other role because um, the advocate while they are the advocate for the child um, they're really a huge support for the caregiver the non-offending caregiver I should say and that, that kind of thing doesn't really come up in the interview because they're just trying to uncover facts mm. um, but in therapy that's where we talk about building healthy relationships um, making smart choices um, setting appropriate boundaries. So with teenagers, um, I've worked a lot with teenage um, people who've been rescued from sex trafficking, Mm -hmm. and that is a huge um, Mm -hmm. issue because they tend to think of themselves Mm -hmm. as a commodity instead of um, as the person with value. So we have to put a lot of focus, um, and that's not just trafficking victims, but all sexual assault victims struggle, might struggle with that at one time. But it's important that they understand, like, hey, this is a thing that's natural. It happens. Whether you've been sexually abused or not, teenagers want to have sex, and that's just life. And um, it would be good for mentors and caregivers to not be afraid of it and not be afraid of talking about it because the kids aren't afraid of it, mm-hmm. and we need to help them. Are there, have you, in your experience, when you've dealt with teenagers who have been trafficked sexually do they are they aware of that is what they were being used for because we've had some students in the past and they very clearly that's what's happening but they um this is my boyfriend this is what i do because i love him you know i i do all these different things Um, it just happens sometimes to be for money Um, things like that Um, how do you address that whole situation i mean you're gonna rock their world right like the only person potentially that cares about them right right um i could talk about this for like five (laughs) episodes so let me try to like gather it um so in my experience i don't think i've ever worked with a victim who self-identified as Mm. being a victim of trafficking that took a lot of treatment before Mm -hmm. we got there Um, rule of thumb meet the child where they're at Mm -hmm. and where they're at is that's my boyfriend and he buys me all this stuff Mm -hmm. so that's where we always start and then once we just work through the trauma treatment and we get through the psychoeducation and the manipulation of what we kind of what you described as like the boyfriend pimp Mm -hmm. that's what we call it um and they have um we call trauma bonding it's kind of like stockholm syndrome so we have to kind of break that down, but it takes a lot to break that down. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had kids who the FBI and Homeland Security want them to testify against their trafficker, but they refuse to because they're in love. Mm-hmm. And so it, it'll take like a lot of time to kind of break that down and for them to see like, oh, what he was doing to me was strictly about the money and he didn't actually love me. But you have to start where they're at and where they're at might be... Um, 
they, they're kind of trained to, to like hate the helping professions. Mm. So they're going to hate you. And you just have to start like, that's okay. I know that you don't want to be here. And I know that you loved the life you had. But, you know, the court said you had to be here. So let's just start here and get to know each other and build that rapport. Mm-hmm. And then eventually they'll come to that determination and that realization on their own. And then they're able to kind of rebuild their own lives. Mm. Gotcha. How, how long... I mean, that's a loaded question too, but um, are we talking like years? How long do you really see people kind of not just suddenly come to this realization, but, you know, slowly start to piece together maybe something's up? Um, It kind of depends on the victim or the survivor. So, um, I mean, I've had kids who the trauma bonds were broken pretty early um, when they realized that, hey, I'm the one who's in detention. He's still out there with all these other girls. Mm-hmm. He doesn't care about me. Mm-hmm. He's not trying to talk to me. But then I've worked with girls for like two plus years, and then they still refuse to testify against their trafficker. So it really just depends on a lot of factors about the individual. So that's, that is kind of hard to answer. Um, but it takes a lot of intense work with the people who are trained and know what they're getting themselves into Mm -hmm. but it can be done right um so when we train our mentors and volunteers we like to provide them with a lot of one-liners as we call them just so if there's you know ever something super shocking out of the blue we have a lot of teenagers who will just like blurt out things maybe once in a while or um, and we like to provide mentors with one-liners just so that when your head is like freaking out you can at least like word vomit this one-liner and like contribute to the conversation do you guys have um any type of across the board like this is the response I give um an open-ended question type thing or if someone says something in an interview and it's just really shocking and you want to get more um information do you have any across the board questions that you can yeah so if you're trying to get more information we do something it's called framing right so if a child says like oh my dad touched me on my pp or something so i would say something like okay i hear you said that your dad touched you on your pp tell me more about that so that's kind of the golden tell me more about that is the golden rule for like interviewing um and even law enforcement they we've had a lot of law enforcement people who they come to interviews and they're like i started using that right Mm -hmm. because when I went to training and they were like you tell me about you tell me about I was like that's not gonna work like you know like that just sounds like gimmicky Mm -hmm. it works like saying tell me more about that because it leaves it to where it's like I don't really have another option except for to you know tell more Mm -hmm. Um, so we never want to you know do a lot of like close-ended like you know Mm -hmm. um did that happen once or more than once? Like, tell me about how many times that happened. You know, just always use that tell me about, but always try those open-ended. Um, but like I said, use a lot of framing. Like, hey, earlier you said something happened at your dad's house. Tell me more about what happened at dad's house. You know, always use what they say, like, to frame the question and then ask ask the open-ended, ask the opening question. But I say tell me about is our, is our golden rule. And that can be a good, you know, way to keep the conversation going as far as if you know immediately you need to report something, but you don't want to, like, rapid fire all these um, facts, yeah. like who, what, when, where, right. why. <laughs> right. um, so you can, you know, talk more about what's going on. And maybe you could, that would be a good segue into talking about reporting, because this is 
one of the main reasons we have we felt like this episode is important because for whatever reason reporting is scares everyone and especially volunteers who maybe aren't mandated reporters necessarily um, but we want to consider and empower them to consider themselves mandated reporters but um you know what types of information do you have what you know, should you report if you still feel like you don't have enough information? Can you talk more about that? Yeah. So there's been so many times, like even in interviews where somebody will say something like, oh yeah, this guy one time, he did this to me. And I'm just like, uh, okay, tell me more about that. Right. And then they, you know, cause you never want to like alert them like, whoa, that's not okay. That's, you know, you never want to do that to where it scares them away from, from reporting more. Um, but really, a, it's like, if you don't report it as an adult, like, who's going to report it, right? Mm-hmm. So I firmly believe that, like, we all need to take care of children and we all need to protect children, mm-hmm. even the children who are 17 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, if you don't, who will? If something gives you just, like, a not right feeling, if a child tells you something and it just, like, kind of that uh, oh feeling we teach kids about, if it gives you that feeling, I say report it. Like, what's it going to hurt? Um, and really, you don't need a lot to report. You literally need, like, who did it and who the child is, what they did, and maybe where it happened, right? So that's really all the basic information you need because it's not our job to investigate what happened and get all the details and get mm-hmm. all the peripheral details it's just our job to report it, and then the hotline kind of decides what happens after that. Mm-hmm. Um, and just to kind of plug, the child abuse hotline is super simple. It's one eight four four save a child. Um, and if you ever forget that, it's easy to like look up on the internet. But um, I say if you if you get a bad feeling, call the hotline. Um, that's always the advice that I give. I in a previous life worked at the hotline. Yeah. Oh. And so I would always tell people, like the. You're not trained to determine if it's abuse. You're not trained to mm-hmm. determine if there's a response needed, but the hotline operators are. Mm-hmm. So you can call them. And when I worked there, people called me about the dumbest stuff that weren't even about children. <laughs> and that what? still didn't make me mad. <laughs> so really, you can call about anything. Mm-hmm. So call it. And if you're not a mandated reporter, you can remain anonymous. Mm-hmm. So that gives a lot of people a little comfort. Mm-hmm. Um, you can actually remain anonymous if you are a mandated reporter. I just would not recommend doing that since it can come back to you and charges could be filed and I've seen it happen it's a mess mm-hmm. so report it but um you don't even if you're not sure put it on the hotline operator let them it's in it's their job to make that determination yeah. I will say brace yourself for a, maybe a little bit of discouragement I still get a little discouraged when I call in because I'm afraid that I didn't give them enough information because they'll ask you all right, what was the potential abuser's birthday and like all for these sure. different things? And it's like, I, man, I don't know. I talked to this person for 10 minutes. Like, right. so brace yourself for that. But I've had instances where I reported and I felt like I knew the bare minimum and I, and I knew afterwards they did pursue it and they opened up an investigation without me. So, um, and in the past, you never know how many people have also called in about that same person. So maybe you know nothing, but two other people at their school or at a hospital or something also reported and they had more information and now you have this, because they keep that log correct. Yes. Um, so all these different bullet points of Jane Doe have now you've added to their um, 
arsenal. So and all you really need to know, um, you don't have to know who the offender is or their demographics or anything. They'll ask you all those questions because mm-hmm. if you know it, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. But as long as you know the child's name and either their address or where they go to school, they can. That's the main info that they have to have. Well, and we've even on the MDT list had like unknown victims, right? So mm-hmm. it's like we know that these parents that live at such and such are abusing their child, and they might not have the name even of the child. So it's literally whatever you have, give it to them and and let them make the determination, like Courtney said. Um, the hardest part yeah. for me um, about reporting is if I know for a fact that I am the only adult that this person has told. I don't want to break that confidence, right? But then you have an obligation to report it, especially if you know it's continuing. How, and sometimes a mentor might be the only person a kid tells, so how do can they go about um, doing that? It, should they be open and honest about, hey, this is what I'm gonna do um, and why? Or if, if so, then what kind of you know wording and how can they talk a kid through that? So I know that we both deal with this on a daily basis um, because when a kid's in an interview and they disclose something else, because we ask like safety questions um, because we know that 66% of these kids are poly victims, meaning that they're experiencing more than one form of maltreatment. Mm. So uh, there's many, many, many times that I have to, you know, call the hotline on other things. And there have been times where, well, to kind of answer your question, I think honesty and transparency is the best thing you can do, especially when you're talking about teenagers. Because like you said, if you're the only adult that they've told, they're going to figure out who it was, right? But if you're kind of like, I don't know, it wasn't me, you know, then that kind of breaks the trust more than if you were just being super right. honest with them. So I've had teenagers where, you know, they're telling me all this stuff and they're like, but I don't want anyone to know. And then I kind of have to say like, I'm going to be really honest with you. Like, I'm a mandated reporter. Um, My job is that I'm supposed to keep kids safe or, you know, my job is that I work with people that are supposed to keep kids safe or, you know, something to that effect. And I will have to report it to the hotline kind of thing. So I think transparency is is key, especially with the older ones. Yeah, and in therapy, so we have um, best practices and things. So we have informed consent. And in therapy, you're expected to bring all this stuff out. And sometimes... stuff will come out in therapy that doesn't come out in the interview so from day one I will explain like I'm here to help you and everything that you say in the um, therapy room is confidential but there are exceptions and I let them know that one of the exceptions like if they want to kill themselves or someone else or um, if they disclose that someone's hurting them and it's not something they've already reported to their interviewer, mm-hmm. then I have to report that. Mm-hmm. And I'll let them know well, up front, like, that's because I'm a mandated reporter, but also as your therapist, my job is to make sure that you're safe. Mm-hmm. And so as a mentor, I'm thinking that's probably a big part of their job is to make sure that the child is safe. So maybe if the mentor said up front at the beginning of the relationship, hey, I'm here for you, you can talk to me about anything, but the primary responsibility of my role is to make sure that you're safe. So if you ever tell me about someone having hurt you or being hurt or you're being hurt currently, it's part of my job and my personal responsibility that I have to you to protect you and have to report that. Mm -hmm. Um, I will sometimes, especially with teenagers, if I sense that this is going in a direction where they're about to disclose something, I can, if I can catch it in time, I'll say, hey, just wanna pause for a second and remind you, 
it feels like you're about to say something you've never told me before and I'll have to report it. Do you still want to go on? And I've never had a teenager say, no, I want to stop right there. Mm. Because at that point, they, they want, want to tell. Share. Yeah, that's encouraging. Because I would think the opposite. I would be, oh, they, they'd be like, oh, okay, never mind. You know, but that's yeah. encouraging. Well, so are there any other closing thoughts or things that you want to share with the community? It could be about, you know, if you could stand on a pedestal, which I'm sure you do, and scream it from the rooftops, like, hey, you need to know this about working with this um, people group. <sighs> Mine sounds so cheesy. But it's Say like, it. we like cheesy. Like, protect the kids. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, protect these kids. Like, like I've said before, like, if you don't, like, who is supposed to, right? Mm -hmm. If you have a six-year-old that doesn't have a phone, has no way of contacting police, right. has nothing, and if you know something and if you don't do something, like, who is, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that's what I would say, even though it's so cheesy. But it's, it's not like, cheesy. Yeah. It unfortunately isn't said enough. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would echo that. And I would also kind of, like she was plugging in that website earlier, we do a lot of trainings for the community. Mm -hmm. um, so, like, I know I train um, people who, just anyone who wants it, on how to identify trafficking victims and working with trafficking victims and what that might be like. And I train um, caregivers who work with kids who have experienced trauma because they need different parenting and their different caregiving styles mm -hmm. and then Carly does a lot of trainings with mandated reporting I'll let her take it from there well yeah so I do something that's called the first response training where it alleged allegedly where it essentially teaches you you know what to ask what not to ask when a child does come to you and say like hey this has happened to me because um, I think a lot of people are like what do I do I'm gonna ruin the case what do, you know what do I get um, so that hopefully eases some people's anxiety anxiety and then we also offer we have somebody who's you know employed with us who's strictly does um prevention and education mm. so she goes out into the schools um she can come to you know not just the schools but she can go literally anywhere um give you materials you know what to do what not to do what's normal what's not normal and that kind of thing um and if we don't provide the training we'll find somebody who can mm -hmm. we've got we're we're pretty well connected <laughs> um so we'll find the resource or the the training that that you guys need yeah and hopefully we can um link some of those um in the episode uh notes and so people can maybe do a little bit of continued ed or reach out to you guys yeah. individually um we hope after this episode everyone feels you know empowered to ask and kind of um dig deeper into things and, and know and trust your gut because it's probably usually right and um, know that there's also organizations like Children's Advocacy Alliance that know way more than we do and um, can come alongside and have you know that helping hand and um, like Harley said just love and support kids and look look out for them yeah. Um, Give we, us a call. Yeah. Too. If you ever no stupid questions. No right? stupid questions. If you ever need anything, seriously, just Google our our information. It's online, and just give us a call, and somebody will somebody will tell you what to do, or connect you with somebody who can tell you what to do. Well, thank you guys both for being here. Yeah. Thank Thanks. you so much. This has been so awesome.